Well, it's about that time again. Welcome back to the Schools and Academy Show podcast. No headlines for you this month, folks, as once again, we're going to be tackling a central theme. And today's podcast, we'll be looking at care experienced children in schools. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the current government policy, analyse where it works and where it doesn't, and investigate what more needs to be done to support these children. We're going to be joined by Andrew Tomlinson, the Head of Content and Commissioning for BBC Teach, to share his experience and help us shine some light on the world of care-experienced children. It's going to be a big topic, so let's get started. So why is this on the radar now? Well, just last month, we saw the appointment of Johnny Mercer as cross-government lead for caregivers to work alongside Claire Coutinho, the Minister for Children, to secure improved care lever outcomes based on recommendations by the Independent Review of Children's Social Care in England. July also saw the release of the Families First for Children Pathfinder Programme and Family Networks Pilot. So clearly, this is something that's on the government's radar. And it's not hard to understand why, on top of the moral obligation, there's an economic incentive as well. The care system currently costs England 10 billion a year, with the negative outcomes associated with uncared for children costing a further 23 billion a year, according to the independent review of children's social care in England. The government outlined six pillars, which form the basis of their approach to supporting children in care. This was in the Stable Homes Built on Love Implementation Strategy and Consultation document published earlier this year. This document is an amalgamation of three separate documents. Those documents are the Independent Review for Children's Social Care, the Safeguarding Practice Review Panel, and the Competitions and Markets Authority. We'll post a link to these in the description. These documents do not mince words in their conclusion that significant reform is needed across the care system, and that, if anything, a full reset and rework of the system is heavily needed. This sentiment is echoed by Education Secretary Gillian Keegan in the foreword of the review, where she remarks that, on the back of these three important reviews, we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to reset children's social care. It is an opportunity we must not waste. The focus of the pillars, and the review as a whole, is to focus the care system around providing warm and caring, supportive environments to set them up to be able to succeed in their goals and aspirations. The vast majority of recommendations in the review are based around the home lives of care-experienced children. However, children spend a huge percentage of their time at school, and if the focus of this project is to enable achievement, then school life must also be a consideration. That brings us on nicely to our guest for today, Andrew Tomlinson, the Head of Content and Commissioning at BBC Teach, who has been leading on the development of resources to help schools commit to providing warm and supportive environments to the benefit of the care of experienced children. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to tell the audience a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, well, for, for the last few years, I've been responsible for the for commissioning of content and the production of content on Bite Sites. So that's content that ranges, and on BBC Teach, there's content that ranges from sort of early primary all the way up to kind of GCSE level. Bite Sites is obviously one of the leading homework and revision sites in in the uk and we have audiences of around uh, two million a week during the peak time you know when when all the kids are at school bbc teach is used in by about 40 percent of teachers every quarter so it's become very popular over the last two or three months and it's my job to make sure that the content on both of those sites 
is as up to date as possible and is not just content, particularly on teaching, not just content for the kids themselves, but also for teachers to help them hopefully do their jobs a bit better and to give some guidance on in some areas where perhaps there aren't that many resources around. Amazing. So I think before we jump into things, Andrew, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, first of all, speaking generally as to why having BBC Bite Size and BBC Teach are such important resources to have out there. And then more specifically, if we could start to allude towards what we're here to talk about mainly today, which is the importance of the resources around care experienced children contained there within. Yeah, well, I mean, in general, Bite Size and BBC Teach are valuable because you know, they're essentially what the BBC should be doing. They're public service and, you know, assuming you pay your licence fee, then they're kind of, they're part of the bargain. They're they're free. And, you know, free resources at the point of delivery are, I know teachers value that because, you know, budgets aren't great at the moment, are they? And for something that's up to date and available, but is also essentially free is a pretty good thing. And is what the BBC is there for. It's to provide entertainment and education. And that's exactly what what we're doing. In the, in the case of these particular resources, it's it's really important, I think, that BBC Teach, it does provide content for the classroom, but it's also there to provide content that helps teachers hopefully kind of deal with some of the issues that they face in the classroom. And one of the issues that a lot of teachers were talking to us about when we went into schools, which we do all the time, was some of the difficulties they're having, some of the challenges they were having with children who were either in the care system or have been through the care system in terms of really getting them the right frame of mind to learn in the first place. So so not so much about the actual learning and what level they should teach certain subjects at, but actually trying to encourage these children to want to learn in the first place. And in order to do that, some of the feedback we were getting from teachers in the sort of focus groups and things that we regularly do was, you know, where do we start with this? You know, we, we need to understand what these children have been through a little bit better in order to, to work out how to deal with the issues that they face and then to get them to start learning in the classroom. When I first proposed this as something that we should be doing with BBC Teach to the head of education, Helen Phelps, she was a little bit, you know, I wouldn't say sceptical, but it's a little bit of a kind of, this feels a bit niche. And my point to her was, well, it's not really, because, you know, so many teachers, the vast majority of teachers, probably all teachers, will at some point in their career have a child or children in their classroom who are either in the care system or being through the care system. And they'll often have very similar challenges. And when you talk to organisations like Adoption UK and After Adoption, they, they, they tell you that, you know, there is a pattern here. They do make the point in the resources that there's no panacea. There's not this, once you've met one adopted child, you've, that's all you've done. You've met an adopted child. The, the next one that you meet could have a completely different set of challenges. But the one thing they all do have in common is that they've probably been through some level of trauma in their early life. And therefore, a trauma-informed approach about how to help these kids is something that, you know, we, we think that teachers hopefully would want to know more about and would be able to use in the classroom. Just before we jump any further, you mentioned there how you use focus groups as a research method to put these together. Are there any other things that commonly come up in those focus groups that staff would like resources on that aren't necessarily always readily available? Well, usually what we go in and ask them about are particular subjects. So if there's been a change in the I don't, primary curriculum around literacy or something, we'll go in and say, well, you know, we know this change is coming and what do you think could help us there? You know, so so we often we sort of ask leading questions, if you like, we'll go in with a bit of an agenda. But this subject arose during those kind of conversations. So it's like, yeah, you know, we'll, and we'll have that conversation about I don't know, the history curriculum or how they'd like to see the new GCSE content on 
whatever biology. And then within the conversation, you'd also start to talk about some of the challenges that they face. And this, this was a common theme that kept coming up during those. We didn't go in into this into the classroom with this agenda. We went into the classroom to talk about different areas of the curriculum, but ended up discussing this because it's a common theme that teachers have to deal with. So it's quite unusual in that sense. We normally go in and ask sort of quite straightforward and perhaps mundane questions about about the history curriculum, for example. I suppose that support for care experienced children really does go hand in hand in practice with trauma informed practice. They're two, almost two sides of the same coin at times, I imagine. Yeah, and I think there's a perception, and it's understandable, you know, because it's not in within most people's, most teachers' sort of life experience within their own families. But there's a suggestion that the trauma that a lot of these children have faced, once they're out of the system and and are in an adoptive family, are probably pretty much kind of gone away, and and therefore they can just crack on with life like anybody else would. But actually, you know, that that isn't the case. And it's pretty much never the case because, you know, that trauma that they've been through in terms of being removed from one family and and moved around from one foster carer to another and all that kind of thing, it doesn't just vanish in a puff of smoke once they reach the age of 11 or whatever. So it's understanding the kind of impact that all of that has had. Within my family, this is an issue. So, you know, I I have personal experience of this as well but th- these resources didn't come because I was my hobby horse and just, you know it's not my sort of personal crusade or anything but but I do understand how deep the impact of the of the trauma is on children who've you know been through this in the in early years and and the longer it goes on you know quite a lot of children they're back and forth between uh, their birth parent and a foster carer for sometimes several years the lack of consistency in their lives and the lack of routine, all of those things have a very long lasting impact and nothing, nothing to them feels permanent, including school and the classroom. So, you know, it's, it's a combination of having spoken to many, many teachers about this, but also my personal experience sort of bears out what those teachers have been telling us. Whilst we're kind of on the subject of experiences, are you able to share with us some of the realities for care experienced children in school? What are the struggles and challenges that they often have when they're in school or what are they facing in terms of accessing curriculums? My my personal experience of this is that children need to be in the right frame of mind to start to learn. And if they're not, because, you know, the trauma is so recent or is so deep rooted, then the kind of the big issue that that we faced was a zero tolerance approach to certain types of behaviour. I fully understand why schools would want to sort of say, look, we don't, we don't stand for this kind of behaviour, therefore we have zero. T- I, I get that. But the, the point with these, this particular cohort of children is that zero tolerance doesn't work. I mean, just in a very basic level, in practical terms, there's no point doing it because it doesn't work. The, the concept of if you don't behave in this way, these will be the consequences. For many of these children, frankly, to put it bluntly, they don't care. They, they don't care if those are the consequences because they're not in that frame of mind. They're still in a kind of traumatized state, state. And so if someone's telling them, you know, if you don't do this piece of homework, for example, then there are various kind of consequences that's of no interest to them. So, so the, then the question is, well, so, so how do you start to help them get into the, the right frame of mind and to deal with some of these trauma issues? And then they can get on with the process of learning and understand you know, that it's not something that should push them to a blind panic uh, and start, you know, it's, it, it's that insecurity and that blind panic that 
that makes a lot of these children behave in the way they do and to you know and that can come out in very many different ways you know it could be violence against other children it could be like throwing furniture around the classroom all of those kind of things but it's all rooted in the fact that they are not ready to learn it's interesting there that you mentioned the policies that are in place in school add to the complexities of the situation obviously not only are staff having to navigate around the complicated lives of the child but also the red tape of their own school so i think something that would be important for people to take home from this is what skills are you looking to help staff develop with these resources to help make that challenge a little easier yeah, well, well, I mean, two points there, really. The first one is that we're not trying to be prescriptive and tell teachers how to do their jobs. They're the professionals. These are some clues, if you like, a bit some guidance as to where these children are coming from, why they show these behaviours. To some extent, to say what I just said earlier, which is, you know, a zero tolerance kind of approach that would work for many other kids doesn't work for them. And so you might, and then we get to sort of the third film, if you like, which is, you might want to deal with these issues in, in these kind of ways. So you know, bringing in other professionals, for example, to help those children talk to those professionals and, and then get, well, essentially get many of the things that are causing the trauma sort of off their chest to some degree. And then they can start thinking about how to learn. This is not a tick list. We don't, we're not saying we have all the answers. We just hope that giving some understanding as to why these children are like this m- may help. Uh, teachers kind of think around the problem a bit more and understand what, why why what is happening is happening. I suppose clearly a lot of thought and consideration has got into the commissioning of these resources and you don't do it on a hunch. Can you shed some light on the rationale behind the commissioning and what the evidence was used to support the content's development? As I mentioned earlier, I think this conversation coming out of visits to schools on such a, you know, so regularly was something that really informed this. We don't just commission basically on a hunch. So so then we started to ask more detailed questions of, of teachers and about whether this kind of resource would be useful for them, you know, via our kind of online contacts with teachers and the newsletters that we send out to schools and that kind of thing. And and the responses we're getting back were generally, you know, I would say probably 70, 80% positive. Yes, you know, this this could be very helpful. So the commissioning was based on that. And one of the things that we were keen to do to make sure that these resources had the impact that we wanted them to have was to, to use the voices of young people who'd actually been through the care system themselves so that they had that authenticity. So it's it's one thing to have essentially kind of a training video where, you know, you have the leading experts in a particular area telling you their thoughts on whatever the subject is, which we do. And I think we have some great experts and some of the leading experts in the country on this sort of issue, both from the teaching side and from the sort of social service side and all of those things. But what I think really brings it to life are these stories told in the first person by these individuals who've been through the care system and are animated, obviously, for safeguarding reasons and for confidentiality reasons. And I think they back up what the experts are saying, but they do it in that sort of very personal way, which tells a story of, for example, one child was bounced from one foster carer to another for a period of years, never knew where they were going to live or which individuals were going to be looking after them. And it just brings home, I think, that message of, 
you know, how difficult it must be for those children and young people to start then thinking about sitting in a classroom and learning when they don't know where they're going to be living the next week. And we, we sort of, I mean, we don't over-focus group things because at the end of the day, we have to make our own editorial decisions. But we did ask teachers whether they thought it would be helpful to have those personal stories as well as the guidance from the sort of experts. And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. So that meant it took a lot longer to make these than we normally take to make an educational resource because finding those individuals who are prepared to talk about what they've been through in a very articulate way, which I think they do, was quite tough. But I think, you know, we did a pretty good job of doing that. Those testimonies, it leads me on to the next question really nicely, really. It's like those testimonies are incredibly powerful and they're incredibly informative. How important was it for you to have those stories told firsthand, do you feel? And how does that kind of separate the resources that you guys have from potentially other resources that are out there? For me, it was really important, both because, you know, I've experienced from a professional and a personal point of view. And I always think professionally that if you if if you have somebody who's been in part of the story, telling the story, you know, as a former TV journalist and radio journalist, I would think that, wouldn't I? But, you know, if you if you genuinely have those individuals telling their stories, the authenticity levels are so obviously so much greater than and, and I've used, you know, actors to voice things in the past. And so I know I kind of know the difference. And, and I think even if they're the genuine words of those individuals, if they're voiced by an actor, you know, however good that actor is, you can always tell that that's not that actual individual who's been through that 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 particular issue and and so to me it was incredibly important that we found young people who had stories to tell and they told the stories themselves and I think that's what makes a difference. Andrew what would you like to see as the next stage of this how would you like to see provision for care experienced children in schools continue to evolve and how are you hoping that BBC Bite Size can help to make that a reality in taking the next step? I think it'd be great if when a teacher or a school knew that there was any particular New Year co- cohort on a, in September, whatever, for example, that, that there are, say, five children who've been through the, or are in the care system coming into their school, that they that preparation's been done to understand what the challenges are likely to be with those children and to have a plan in place. And I know many schools would say, well, we already do, but actually, you know, I, I'm not sure that's true. I think if a child has an EHCP, for example, of course, that's the case because they have to do that. But a lot of these children don't. And so but they need a plan as well. And I think if teachers can understand, you know, some of the issues that are likely to happen and to get ahead of them and say, OK, you know, there's, there's going to be some challenges with this child. We can deal with it this way by bringing in this support or bringing in some help from CAMS or whatever it might be. At least there can be, you know, an awareness there, because I think one of the problems is that sort of knee-jerk reaction to children behaving like this is the last thing a, a child like this needs is a kind of panic knee-jerk reaction to the way they're behaving. And quite often that's what they get. And what that does is it kind of, the sort of descent into chaos happens even more quickly. So, you know, I would hope that this, this could be used as a resource to kind of understand and to head off problems uh, rather than something that's used to kind of, oh, we've got a problem here. I'd better look it up and see what I can do. I mean, I'm really keen to, you know, I know how tough teachers' jobs are and, and social workers' jobs. I, I'm really keen. This is not a criticism of 
people in either of those professions. But in my personal experience, I've seen some of this. You know, if you don't understand the problem, you don't know how to deal with the problem. So we're hoping we can just give a bit more understanding. Well, to finish off, if there's one thing that you'd like people to take away from listening to this episode and from interacting with these resources, what would it be? I would personally like to, I mean, I I know I mentioned this earlier, it's a little bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I would just like as many people involved in in teaching and looking after these children to understand that a a zero tolerance approach to their behaviour isn't isn't going to work. And I know people, I understand why teachers don't want to, or schools don't want to make exceptions to a rule like a zero tolerance behaviour rule. But, you know, I would say personally, in the case of these children, you kind of have to. And and I know that sticks in the throat for many schools, but I know that and, it, and there'll be resentment amongst kind of other children and probably amongst some of the teachers about that. But if you want to make this work, you're going to have to think think around the problem in a different way because, you know, it's it, it doesn't <laughs> zero tolerance doesn't work for these kids. Well, I think that's just about all the questions we had for today. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience before you go? Um, best of luck for the for the new school year. Enjoy it. <laughs> you can. <laughs> Short and sweet. Lovely. We like it. Thank you again, Andrew. We'll speak to you again soon. Well, I think that was a really insightful chat with Andrew there. Before Alex and I head off, though, why don't we give you a little bit of news from August as well? Anybody who follows Jeremy Clarkson on Twitter, yes, Twitter, will know that it has been results season. This is the first year results for GCSEs and A-levels have returned to their pre-pandemic grading after seeing results provided by teachers during the pandemic, leading to what's been called gradeflation. As always on results day, there are discussions to be had, especially when we see large variations in results geographically year on year, with a 9.2% fall in top results overall, increasing the regional divide between the north and south of the country. The general fall in grades should perhaps come as no surprise, as it was signposted by Ofqual long ago. Cast your minds back to the Schools and Academies show Birmingham in November last year, where Ian Borkham said as much, stating that 2023 would see fewer pupils receiving top grades. We'll include the link to his keynote in the description, so make sure to go back and refresh yourself. And also, while you're there, make sure you go listen to our episode covering SAS Birmingham, which features an interview with the man himself. The increasing divide between North and South was not on the docket, though, shockingly and Ofqual Chief Regulator Dr Joe Saxton has labelled them uncomfortable, but reiterates that they are a picture that needs to be seen, and has stressed for ministers to take a good, hard look at them. This inequality can also be seen in university places. The proportion of 18-year-olds accepted into university in London has increased by more than 16% this year, whereas in the North West, the figure rose by only 0.4%. Schools North East have stressed the necessity of a long-term plan to address these educational inequalities, with their director, Chris Zagaraga, stating that if these plans are not implemented, then there is a risk of accepting these inequalities as norms. Changing gears a little bit now, our regular listeners will remember when we covered the CEO development NPQ that was recently released. Further eligibility criteria has been published, with those looking to start the programme must be a CEO with, quote, a strong track record of high performance or school improvement. The application process is quite rigorous. There will be interviews for candidates and these could happen over the course of a weekend. There will also be a self-assessment element of the application and candidates will be required to have an endorsement from a senior colleague addressing their capability and potential. Upon acceptance, candidates will undertake an individual diagnostic task 
to look at where their gaps in knowledge are. The programme isn't only open to CEOs, though, but trust chairs as well. The contents of the programme will be co-designed with the Education Endowment Foundation and Ofsted, while also consulting faith-based trusts, CPD bodies and other leading mats. In order for the programme to have a maximum impact on the educational landscape, it will be proactively advertised in the 25 education investment areas. Recruitment to the programme should support diversifying the executive leadership of trusts also. Melanie Rinaldin, the National Institute of Teaching Chief Executive, hopes the programme will have a broader impact for the wider sector. She is quoted in Schools Week as saying, In line with our desire to improve the whole education system, we want this programme to generate evidence that can inform CEO development elsewhere in the sector. The contract for the training programme is now worth just under £3.8 million. Well, I'd say that just about wraps things up for today. Once again, we'd like to thank Andrew Tomlinson from BBC Teach for joining us today. We've had a great time listening to him and we hope you have too. Definitely make sure you go check out the resources on BBC Teach and we'll make sure to include links to them in the description so you can peruse the content to your heart's content. Speaking of content, make sure you check out the agenda for the Schools and Academy Show Birmingham and book your place at the show on the 22nd of November at the NEC. It's sure to be another great one for the books and we hope to see you there. And for those who can't make it, don't worry, we'll have a recap episode for you. But until next month, it's goodbye from me. And that's goodbye from me.